The Redefining Parenthood podcast focuses on building your family using a donor, featuring stories where a difficult trying to conceive journey has unexpectedly led them towards this path. I'm your host, Becky, also known as Defining Mum, a proud mum to three amazing girls, all thanks to egg donation, following my own diagnosis of premature ovarian failure in my late 20s. I know from my own experience and speaking to many others that this isn't a simple path. It's not just a one-time decision and there's lots to think about, many emotions to deal with and actually with very little support available and quite often we just don't know anyone else who can truly relate to how we're feeling. That's where this podcast can help. Through personal stories I'll be sharing relatable conversations as we talk about the hope and the expectations, alongside feelings of shame, dealing with genetic loss, family resemblances, talking to others and importantly to our children about this lesser discussed family building story. Hello and welcome back. I hope you're all well. I hope you've had a good week and that you've been able to enjoy some sunshine wherever you are. It's been lovely here in the UK and it's been a really, really busy couple of weeks since the last episode. So a couple of weeks ago I launched my new in-person event. So if you are listening in real time, that's happening on Saturday the 21st of May. If you're listening after that date, it's already happened. But I will talk a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Sean last week. It was a great one to share with your partner and it's so nice to hear your feedback and to hear how comforting it is to hear another man speak about his experience. This week's episode is going to be slightly different because I'm not focusing someone who is at the end of their trying to conceive journey, but I'm actually focusing on someone who is still on that journey and it's the story of someone in between and what I really wanted to try and focus on is for those of you who are particularly still going through this the bits where it doesn't always work because that is the reality and we can talk about all of the amazing stories of hope and where things work first time but when you're in a position where things haven't gone to plan it can feel very very lonely and I will just give a sensitive warning here. There is a talk of miscarriage in this episode um, and the difficult conversations that follow that. But my hope is that you will come away feeling more validated and less alone. And that's something I'm sure you'll feel once you've heard Julianne share her thoughts at the end of this episode as well. So yeah, I hope you find it useful. I hope you find it comforting. And I hope that you come away feeling like you're not on your own. I'm really, really grateful today to have Sital Savler, who is joining me to share her story. Um, and I have so much admiration for Sital. Um, she shares her story in such a raw, honest and relatable way. And she shares it in real time too. So my story has always been shared pretty much in retrospect, but to talk about those feelings and those emotions that you're going through whilst it's happening is something else. And I know that through doing that, she has helped so many in this community to feel less alone. And as part of this short podcast series, one of the things that I really wanted to do was give some airtime to some of the stories where it may not always go to plan. Because I know there are so many people out there who hear all of the stories where people are on the other side and it may not happen as easily or as quickly for them. And that can be even more isolating than going on this journey in the first place. And so I'm so, so grateful to have Seatel, who is going to be sharing where she's at at the moment and also some of the complexities in emotions and feelings when it doesn't work out in the way that you expect. Um, And we're also going to be touching on another really important topic, which is the the cultural challenges that can come up when you're in a community where the shame and the stigma around both infertility and donor conception as a topic is even greater. So welcome, Sital. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to hand over to you to give us a bit of an an overview of your story, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. I wanted to start start by thanking you, Becky, for having me on your podcast. And thank you to everyone who's listening as well. I hope that uh, sharing my story and talking about where I'm at, the cultural uh, problems that we can face will help anyone else in a similar situation. So 
My fertility journey started on Christmas Day back in 2015, when my husband Neil and I found out that I'd fallen pregnant naturally. Up until this point, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to have kids, and that was largely because of the pressure that I faced from certain elder family members and other people in the community. But when I saw pregnant on the test, I was just absolutely elated. Sadly, that went on to become a chemical pregnancy, and that really hit me hard. But the very slim silver lining was that I realized I wanted to have kids and also that there was probably an issue because that was our first pregnancy in eight years. So long story short, we were diagnosed with a diminished ovarian reserve and we started IVF. And after three failed cycles, our consultant at the time mentioned using a donor for a higher chance of success. And in the moment, I don't recall feeling shocked or angry or confused, frustrated, any of those feelings. I just thought if there's a higher chance of success of having a baby, then I'm all for this option because I was so tired of trying and failing mm. to have one. Yeah. But Neil was more reluctant. And so we agreed to have a fourth and final cycle using my own eggs. When that failed, we moved on with uh, donor conception and we decided not to have an Indian donor, which is quite rare for an Indian couple. And that's something that we can come back to a bit later mm. on. We chose a Spanish donor initially, and that cycle didn't go smoothly because she produced 15 immature eggs, which was absolutely crushing for all of us concerned, for the clinic, for the donor, for yeah. Neil and I. And thankfully, the clinic found us another donor pretty quickly, an Ecuadorian donor whose profile matched what we were looking for. And that was successful. So last April, I had my transfer and I fell pregnant, which was just amazing. It's everything that we wanted, but we were just so aware of how fragile that could be. You hear all these stories of success using a donor and the expectations were high, but because yeah. we'd had so many failed cycles, we just were trying to be cautiously optimistic. Yeah. And unfortunately, the worst case scenario happened about eight, nine weeks later at a scan when we found out that there was no heartbeat. I'd had a missed miscarriage and that was back in June. So at the moment, we're sort of just figuring things out, coming to terms with the grief of that. We currently live in Berlin. It's been a year. So we're just trying to take life slowly and enjoy the opportunities that we have while the restrictions are easing and just give ourselves a bit of time and space to breathe. Yeah, I, I'm so sorry, Sita. I mean, I know your story very, very well. And the way that you've documented it and, and shared with everyone, I think everyone's almost been on that journey with you. And I think it's it's a really wise thing to take that time to grieve because mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but when you're going through fertility treatment, you're kind of going from one cycle to the next and to the next, and you're literally just thinking about what next. And Sometimes you do need that time just to take a, take a breath and to really focus on you um, after so long. So thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. And one of the things I wanted to pick up on there is you talked about the, the hope that comes with donor eggs. And I always feel that quite often it's given as the solution and that that is going to be the answer and you hear so many stories of where it's worked and and the odds are much higher but in reality just like with IVF there are still no guarantees and mm -hmm. there's such great expectations that that comes with that and the complexity of all the different emotions as you like you say you were trying to be yeah. cautiously optimistic how have you dealt with that and have your feelings around hope shifted now when it comes to donor eggs? That's a difficult question to answer, actually. It's, it seems, I feel I'm in the minority because when donor eggs were mentioned to us and suggested, I didn't feel any grief around that, the loss of genetics, mm. because I thought I just really would like to have a family. I was focused on the bigger picture of carrying the baby. I would feel connected that way. There's all this research now and um, studies going into epigenetics. So I would you know, pass on sort of my characteristics in a way. And then also because Neil's genes would be involved, then, you know, it would feel like our baby. So I didn't feel yeah. like I was grieving that necessarily. I think it's a general feeling of failure that my body can't do what nature intended and that we had to 
resort to another route to parenthood, but then also feeling immensely privileged that we have access to that. We have the finances, we have the best clinics in London. And yeah, there is a lot of hope because as I mentioned, there are so many stories, yours being one of them of success. And you don't tend to hear when things don't work out. And so I think that sort of skews your perception a little bit as well. And since I've shared how our story or this chapter of our story ended, a lot more people have contacted me and said, yes, we also had failed cycles and our hope is now sort of on the floor. And each time you have a failure, it becomes harder and harder to pick yourself back up. So yeah, I think part of that giving ourselves space to grieve and breathe is just to rebuild that hope as well, because it's still sort of there, even though in the immediate aftermath of a miscarriage, you just think I'm finished. I can't do this anymore. We can't put ourselves through this. Our lives have been on hold for so long and we just want to live and enjoy what we do have instead of fixating on the things that we don't. So the journey isn't over yet because we've still got two embryos, two frozen embryos in London. And if we decide not to move forward with our journey, that this is sort of the end of the story, then the question remains, what should we do with them? Do we donate them, donate to research or donate to another couple looking to conceive? And if a pregnancy does result from that donation, how would we feel knowing that there's a baby, children in the world with Neil's genes and they succeeded where we failed? It's all very complicated and a lot to think about. And it's, I'm still, I'm dealing with all of that in therapy. I recently started sessions again. I found a Mm. South Asian therapist, which is something that I never thought I would say because I wasn't really interested in connecting with that side of things. I didn't think I needed to speak about the culture, but it's all very interwoven. There's a lot of pressure, as you mentioned in the introduction, a lot of cultural elements to take into consideration. So I am focusing on the traumatic miscarriage. It was about two months long because we went for the medical management and there were some complications. And then just also the trauma of the failed cycles, which has gone on for about five years. And you think you've sort of dealt with something because you've cried and you've raged. And I've talked about it openly to to friends and family and on social media, but there's still a lot that you bury away, I think, in order to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's a good time to maybe talk about the, within the Asian community, what what would you say are the additional challenges faced and the complexities as you just said you've you've started to explore some of those yeah i think in the first instance for most people of south asian heritage it's finding an ethnic match so we were told that the average wait in the uk would be about 2 or 3 years for an asian donor and that's a separate subject as well why there are so few donors but if an Asian couple or individual wanted to use an egg or sperm donor in the UK, you'd be waiting a long time. And that is excruciatingly long when you're on this journey and also when time isn't on your side. Yeah. So then an alternative would be to go abroad, maybe to India or somewhere like Cyprus or Greece, where they have more access to Indian donors. But there are costs involved with that. And at the moment, so many travel restrictions And that's one of the reasons why we decided not to go abroad, because this was Mm. going back to late 2019, early 2020, when COVID was hitting all the headlines and things were so unsure. And so the other option after that would be to use a donor of non-Asian origin. So in our case, it was um, a Spanish donor, an Ecuadorian one. We also looked at Portuguese. It just came down to availability in the end. Yeah. But the phenotyping is quite similar. So the characteristics of uh, Spanish and Portuguese women are similar to those of Asians, yeah. the dark hair, the dark skin and eyes. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why we made that choice. But if somebody is not ready or doesn't want to tell family, then an anonymous donor would be better. And that's why I understand that people do choose an Indian donor yeah. because it raises fewer questions. No one would ever really even think that that was the journey that you went through to have the baby. Mm, and I, I hear a lot, I think more so within that community that talking openly, not only to friends and family, but also to the child as well, it is, is mm-hmm. a lot more difficult because of the cultural pressures and, and everything that goes on. And I know you went down the route of wanting a donor that wasn't fully anonymous so that you 
could and you've talked about that before can you just talk about why you you chose to go in the UK and you were also looking at Portugal yeah for me I think it's because I wanted to have the choice or for our potential child to have the choice of finding out more about the donor if they wanted to so in the UK it's non-anonymous and when the child turns 18 they have access to the basic information identifying information about the donor and if they choose not to find out then that's up to them but I just think that that's an important part of their story and I try to flip the situation and think if I was a donor conceived child then I would like that as well yeah but it's a very very personal decision and some people have told me, actually, there was someone who DM'd me and said that she used a donor and she's not ashamed of the journey whatsoever. She's talking to her child about it openly, but hasn't shared it with her family because she's afraid of what will change and the judgment that will come with that. So at the moment, they say things like, oh, she has your hair or, you know, she has your mannerisms and expressions. But if you reveal that you use a donor, then there'll just be comments about that, you know, oh, mm. maybe she gets that from the donor and you're sort of sidelined a little bit. And it just makes it a thing. And that was one of Neil's uh, reservations as well, that we'll have to explain more. It can't just be you're our child biologically and then we get on with the challenges and the joys of parenting. It becomes an extra subject that we have to deal with, which we wanted to be open about anyway from the start. And we are fortunate that we have got the full support of both sides of the family. And so there are no extra obstacles in that sense but even when you have support it doesn't mean that you have understanding necessarily so there's a lot of education you have to do around that and that can be extremely tiring when you're trying to come to terms with Mm. everything that you're going through absolutely and it almost feels like the the struggles that many of us feel in terms of speaking openly the worry about what others may think and may say and the stigma Mm -hmm. it's amplified within your community in a way because there is that that focus I know Krina who talks quite mm-hmm. openly about it as well has focused on on the extra challenges that it brings and that pressure to conform yeah. in the way that is expected there's a lot of pressure from the beginning really especially on girls to just be perfect you know to study the perfect subjects at school go to university find the right husband have a few years together and then start having children get the house get the cars. And I I know that's across all communities, but as Karina has previously mentioned as well, I think a lot of that comes from being the children of immigrant parents and you are very aware of the sacrifices that they've made Mm -hmm. to come to the UK in this case and give you the best opportunities. And you sort of, you want to thank them. You don't want to let them down. So already there's that guilt and shame that you can't naturally have a baby like other people seem to do so easily. And I know that that's not the case. We see things through our own lens. So a lot of people are going through infertility journeys and they don't share that. And you just see, oh, they've been married for four years and now they've got three kids. You have no idea what the story is. So I try to remember, remind myself that we all have things that we're dealing with in the background. But there is that shame and guilt. And then also the misunderstanding as well, the judgment that would come from others that you need to explore different paths to parenthood yeah, and just disappointing everyone in general, actually being an embarrassment and people talking about you. There's a lot of what will others think going on and yeah. you don't want to give them any ammunition, really, so to speak, to talk about, to damage your family's reputation, really. I think yeah. it comes down to that. Yeah. And, and is there also worries around how the child might be treated as well? knowing that information yeah there is that there's a possibility depending on your setup and your community that the child could be shunned and that would be absolutely devastating because you've worked so hard to have a family and you just want to then move on and enjoy that and there there are so many things to take into consideration as well and if you have children at the moment Neil and I don't so we can make different decisions to someone who already may have a biological child or children how is that donor conceived child going to fit into your family will you tell them their story and will it cause any issues yeah yeah and I think for you speaking with a therapist from your community as well must 
must be a huge comfort when you're talking about those different complexities. I know you've decided you're going to be open, you have been open, and really what you're doing is sort of trailblazing the way within your community to show that you can stand up and, and say, this is what we're going through and this is our journey. And we're not afraid or ashamed to talk about it. And I've talked about shame in, a, in another episode, but it's such a common feeling on this path and, and has such an impact on on how people feel about talking. And um, I know we we've, the research is, is saying now, and we know from listening to Donor Conceived Adults that talking and telling early is really really important but it also means that in these communities that there's got to be some work done around this raising awareness and and talking about this which is why what you're doing is so important thank you I think that's a start for more people to come out and share their stories if they're comfortable to do so whether they do that in real time like I do or in retrospect either way I think it has value and it can help people in different ways but, and actually one of the great things is that since I've been doing this now for about three years, there are more and more people of Asian origin, men and women, but predominantly women, talking about their um, journeys. That aside, I think more needs to be done in the community. So maybe sort of doing some outreach with the different communities in centres, with GPs, at schools, at clubs, anywhere where you can speak to different generations, I think, as well. And yeah. Bollywood is actually an amazing source because there, there are lots of films, well, lots. There are a few films coming out. There was one about donor sperm a few years ago featuring uh, John Abraham, who's a really well-known actor. And that gets people talking as well. It opens up conversations and normalizes it. So in my family, I, one of my cousins actually used a donor to have her child. And for me, it's not really been a problem um, because I've always known about that. And then my mom has spoken to me openly about her experience of miscarriage. And I know that's not the case with everyone. So if a film allows you to broach the subject and normalises it, I think that's a great step forward. Yeah. And it may be that this podcast could be that step forward for somebody to share mm-hmm. you speaking about it and the challenges that, that that are faced to just provide that tool. because sometimes it's harder for us because we feel so emotional and when we're in it and to open up and we're so worried, but actually having things where you're talking out, I know you do a lot of um, press articles around infertility and IVF and the struggles and it's got to be helping people because just a few years ago, I mean, there were, there was hardly anything out there about it. So it really feels like things are moving and there's still so much work to do, but yeah, I think don't underestimate the difference that you're making um, Thank you. for people out there. So That reminds me, actually, sorry, just mm. uh, as the memory popped up, that the work that I've done with Ferring, part of it is a Fertility Diaries series. So it's um, a 13-part series just charting my last cycle, going back to London, having the frozen embryo transfer, and then the subsequent miscarriage. And one of the latest episodes was about grief and a friend of mine shared it with her parents because she was unable to talk to them directly about a similar experience that she'd gone through losing her child. And she said it really allowed them to connect in a way that they hadn't before because I sort of voiced everything that she was feeling. And then in that episode, I was completely taken aback because I ended up bursting into tears. I'd recorded a few takes and I'd been completely fine and I don't know what triggered me but I think it was just talking about the fact that when you speak to counsellors and therapists you get that validation you get someone saying you have been through something massive and it's yeah. going to take time to recover just be gentle with yourself you know and grief is not linear yeah. you will feel okay on some days and then out of the blue it will hit you again so when you hear stories like that you know you just think that it feels like a big honour actually to be able to have people confide in me and also then push the needle forward in their personal yeah. lives. Yeah, definitely. And and I did see your diary series and, and like I say, just, I know it sounds like I mean, you must hear this all the time, but it, it is so so brave of you to share that in real time because you are just opening up, opening up the rawest of emotions and after everything you've been through over the last few years, there's 
layer upon layer of grief mm-hmm. that you don't even realize has built up so much and I think what you say around validation is, is so important and that's why I wanted to do this episode as well just to for anyone who out there who is still on that journey and is still going through this to validate what they're going through and to say that you're not alone and that's yeah. what your story has given for so many people and gosh There's I wish it would yeah. yeah yeah exactly just seeing someone else articulating what you're struggling to do and then it all the pieces of the puzzle sort of fit together and everything comes into focus a bit more and it's just instant recognition isn't it and acknowledgement and I myself found that through various podcasts and accounts like your own and books and I wanted to be able to give that to others just so that they know that they're not alone because it can feel like an incredibly lonely journey especially at the beginning and even with all the amazing support that I have from family and friends and kind strangers, I still have moments where I just think I'm utterly alone because it just feels very dark at times. And it's really important to have representation as well because a lot of people have messaged to say that, you know, they're part of this community and it gives them strength and solidarity, but seeing someone whose path is similar, or at least their experiences are similar in terms of what I talked about with the judgment and the shame and the guilt and so on, it helps a lot. It's very comforting. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's just so important to hear these stories because I think although there are so many similarities between them, like you've just mentioned, there are also lots of Mm -hmm. differences as well. And we're not all the same. We don't go through this journey in the same way. So for some people, it will work first time. For some people, it will take a few goes. For some, it may never work. It, And for some people will decide to step back at different times. And that's not them giving up. (laughs) It's them making a decision to, I hate that phrase. Um, Me too. But even what you said around the fact that you didn't really feel a huge amount of grief over the loss of genetics. I think that's a really important thing to bring up as well, because I have people coming to me sometimes and saying, I don't feel Mm. that much grief. And is there something wrong with me? Am I missing something? And, and just because I did, doesn't mean that everyone's going to feel that way. We're all different. So I don't know whether you've had anyone saying the same to you. Only a couple of people, the majority of people I discuss donor conception with, especially of Indian origin, they do worry about that. And it's completely normal and valid, I think, because mm. you, a lot of us have this vision of what we want our family to be like and how things will unfold. We'll get married two, three years later, we'll have a baby and then have another one. And, you know, you have this plan that's sort of been <laughs> programmed into you, I guess, by society and your family and the examples you see in everywhere and when it doesn't work out that way it's very confusing so part of me wanting to share my story is also to present a different reality and also the IVF as we said earlier is not a guarantee donor conception surrogacy none of these routes guarantee success and what do you do with that when things fail and people are telling you never to give up because my neighbor's colleague's daughter tried for 15 rounds and then they got lucky you know does that make you a failure and does it make you weak then if you decide, well, one round was actually too much for me? No, not at all. There's um, so much strength in saying I'm done or mm, I, I've got to the point because you are you're being self-aware, you are listening to yourself and emotionally, physically, that there's so much that goes into this that needs to be considered. And and also it's not just you going through it as well. No. Neil is. <laughs> Do you mind talking a little bit more about Neil and and how he's been through this process because often we hear kind of real differences between how the woman goes through it in terms of also how the man goes through it um have you two always been on the same page I know you said earlier he took a bit longer to come around to the idea yeah I was ready as soon as the consultant said let's go on to donor conception you know I recommend that avenue and for him he was hesitant because he really did want to have a biological child, probably more so than I did. And he was ready to have a child at least two, three years before I was. It took that miscarriage for me to then think, actually, this is something I want Mm -hmm. because there'd been so much pressure. And I sort of rebelled and 
kind of convinced myself I didn't really want to have kids. But yeah, that's sort of why we delayed our donor conception journey a little bit. And part of his concern was just having to explain this extra layer to the child. So one thing is going through IVF and this is how you were conceived because we struggled and it was a difficult journey. But then, you know, you are half Indian and half Spanish or Ecuadorian, whatever it, you know, it would yeah. have been. And I think it's a beautiful thing that someone is making a donation. It's a gift that you wouldn't normally have, but then it does complicate matters as well. And maybe it might make them feel different in a negative way as well. The child, you don't know how they'll react, even if you've been open about it. Mm -hmm. And that's always one of the biggest fears for people. How might my child feel about this in Mm -hmm. however many years time? Um, So, yeah, I think what you're saying there around Neil, I think is really, really common and quite often I think I didn't realise at the time because it took my husband longer to come round to the idea that he too was grieving the loss of my genetics and that Mm -hmm. idea of the child that we thought we would have. And exactly, yeah, yeah. and I I think it is something that you both have to go to and come to it at a a point in time where you make that decision. But um, yeah, it's not always as easy. Yeah, it's a big thing. It's the loss of genetics. And even though... I didn't necessarily grieve around that. There was grief in other respects. I think for me, the bigger problem is just the anger at my own body you know, that I have to go through IVF. And then I, I guess now that we're on this road, whether it's donor conception or adoption or surrogacy, you know, it's still it's still tough to yeah. have to go through that. And I, I think because as I said, that I would be carrying the baby, I would feel connected to it. Yeah. But, you know, I I know that not everyone would feel that way. And then there's also the double (laughs) issue of uh, having to give up your ethnicity as well, potentially. Yeah. And in in our case, because Neil and I were were both Indian, so it wouldn't have been such a big problem. But for other people, for example, if you're in a mixed heritage relationship and your partner isn't Indian, then, yeah, that's a big thing to think about. Yeah, it's so, so complex. And I think it's only through hearing these stories and bringing them to life that we can really explore all of those different complexities. And um, as part of this podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Julianne Buteleb as well and picking up on on the key themes that are coming out here for her to, to give her insights and advice as well. I'm so, so grateful for you sharing this CETA with us. Um, I just want to finish with... On reflection, um, given everything you've been through and where you're at now, what three pieces of advice would you give for somebody else who is embarking on this path? I think the first piece of advice would be just to take your time, the time that you need, whether that is a few months or a year or so, to think through everything, to consider the grief, losing that vision of the family you thought you would have, losing your ethnicity potentially using losing your genetics any fears that you have about bonding with the baby how they will feel how it would work in your current family setup whether you want an anonymous or non-anonymous donor the ethnicity that you'll choose if it's not Asian um, and then where would you go would you stay in the UK would you go abroad then that means research for clinics And would you tell family as well in the community? And how would you tell your child if you decide to do so? All these things need to be considered. It's not something that you can rush and jump into and take lightly. And there are so many resources. So the second bit of advice would be to lean on those, to use them, whether that is uh, a wonderful platform like Paths to Parent Hub or um, podcasts, books, There are so many out there and I'm happy to suggest uh, the ones that I'm aware of and the ones that have helped me. Yeah. If anybody wants to DM me and there's the donor conception network as well, the HFEA, a lot of information out there. And then finally, the bigger picture for me, I think that's probably why I didn't feel that grief around the loss of genetics because I was envisioning myself with the baby moving on to that next chapter, having the family that we dreamed of for so long. And if you think about, 
the children in your life already, you know, your nieces and nephews, your friends, kids, do you love them any less because they're not genetically related to you? There's still so much love there, especially for nieces and nephews, you know, you've got that connection. And I think that's worth pondering as well before you make a final decision. Yeah, I think that's really, really wise advice. I think taking that time is so important. And I look back now and I definitely didn't take enough time. I ploughed on, but there there didn't seem to be as many resources and conversations out there now. So there was a lot that I didn't consider at the time that I would have considered, I think, if if I was to go through that again. And I think um, when you talk about the bigger picture, uh, that is so important. And to allow yourself to visualise that Mm -hmm. family made in that way and the conversations that you might have around it, not just to family and friends, but to the child as well and and how that might feel. And yeah, there's just so much to take in. But I think what you said earlier about finding a therapist is so important as well because there are so many different complexities and very unique complexities as well when it comes to this path. Yeah, that was something that I wanted to go back to as well, actually, that I didn't think I was suffering from trauma. I didn't see these layers of grief as trauma, Mm. you know, the years of trying and failing through IVF. I thought I had dealt with it by speaking openly, journaling, writing all these pieces, doing podcast interviews and so on. But it's amazing how much hasn't been dealt with, actually. And a good therapist will get you thinking about things from different angles and reconnecting with those emotions that you've sort of yeah unintentionally buried really yeah and it is trauma it is devastating each time you go through a failure and then if there is a miscarriage and that will whatever the nature of it is because I remember with my first one the physical side of things wasn't bad at all it hit me very hard emotionally yeah whereas the second one was both physical and emotional and all of that takes time to work through yeah it definitely does and yeah it's not to under- underestimate everything that you've been through to get to this point and uh, it does take time and you're you're allowed to be kind to yourself and to give yourself that time which yeah. is quite often we aren't and we just think we need to pick ourselves up and move on to the next stage so I felt like a bit of a fraud so if there's anyone out there thinking well I didn't have this kind of long, messy miscarriage experience, or I haven't been through five or 10 rounds of IVF, so I don't feel that I can talk about my sadness in the same way. You know, it's there's no hierarchy of guilt no. or shame, or it's not a competition. You know, you feel the way you feel, and that is perfectly valid. It's something that I just really wanted to sort of drive home and get that message across. That's such wise words and words that I wish I'd have heard back when I was going through it because um yeah I think I've said a number of times that the grief of what I'd been through only really hit me after I'd had the girls and I was listening to a podcast and it was talking about the grief of infertility and the trauma and suddenly I was in floods of tears realizing everything that I'd bottled and built up over time and yeah you protect yourself that I think mm. that's part of what it is as well you it's not a desperation to move forward as such. I hate using the word desperate. Like I hate sometimes being called brave and strong, but yeah, you just need to shut off certain things and in order to move on to the next step, I think, but it does need to be dealt with at some point because it will resurface yeah. for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's allowing yourself to be vulnerable because mm-hmm. we are so vulnerable when we're making these decisions and we're going through these, these different paths to parenthood and, it's very hard to do all of these things, think ahead and think about what we're going to say. And whilst we're still hope, like worrying that it might not happen and grieving everything that we've already been through, it, it's such a complex set of emotions. And um, I think through sharing, you have been able to bring that to life for people. And I know there'll be so many out there who relate to what you're saying. And uh, so people can find you on Instagram at Sablafair. That's right. S-A-V-L-A-F-A-I-R-E. 
And it's the same handle on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest as well, actually. And Ooh. my blog is savlafair.com. Thank you. And I'll make sure I add those to the show notes so that people can find you. And I just want to say a huge, huge thank you again, Cetal, because um, there is so much value in you sharing your story. And we are all thinking of you and hoping whatever you decide, you get there thank you very much for having me and for having these conversations for starting this podcast for your instagram feed the posts that help so many people including myself and past a parent hub thank i have you. nothing but uh, positive feedback on it thank you very much thank you so much to Cetel for sharing what i know is a difficult and distressing experience and if this is something you've either been through or are going through i hope that you feel less alone in hearing it talked about on this platform. Next, I talk with Julianne about the emotional and psychological impact that this can have on us, particularly where we've already had to change course and rebuild our hope. How do we start to think about next steps when things don't go to plan? So welcome back to Julianne, who's going to be talking again about one of those feelings that we don't often hear discussed. And Cetel and I talked about lots of different things and, and we talked about how we don't tend to hear about when things don't work out, particularly on this path, um, which I think is really important for people to share stories in, but also how that in turn creates more shame and more isolation. Um, and we also talked about it in the, in the context of cultural aspects as well. But Julianne, what emotions do you see in people where their path to parenthood hasn't gone as planned? Yeah. Um, I mean, shame absolutely is, is the feeling um, and a sense of disappointment, of confusion, um, a sense, uh, I guess, a fear. And if you think of what shame is, essentially, it is a fear of disconnection. And sometimes when I see um, people in therapy who have invested a lot of hope in this final part of the journey, let's be it for those who have used their own eggs or sperm. Um, there can also be a very profound internalized sense of shame. I remember one woman saying to me, I feel like I let the donor down, that you know, all I had to do was to carry the embryo and I couldn't even do that. So almost like another layer of shame added yeah. to all of the other feelings that may have preceded this part of the journey. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? Because, of course, the sense of belonging that we have at any different point on this journey is often what keeps us going. And it's almost as if what can happen is at the beginning, of course, we're part of, of a group, let's say, of friends trying to conceive and, and reimagine we're part of that group. But as the journey continues, I guess the group gets smaller and smaller. Um, and then I often say to people, you know, we often do a sort of a, um, we go down a path less travelled. And, and so we're in a much smaller group of people. I think often part of what can happen at the point when donor conception doesn't work is a sense of disconnection even from that group. So a very profound, almost existential mm. sense of, well, where do I belong? And that that can really hit at a very profound level for someone who perhaps because of cultural um, narratives around being able to conceive, I see this a lot, you know, within the community that Sital has, has spoken about, you know, South Asian community or within the um, Black British community, where a lot of these things have already been very secret and mm. are covered in secrecy um, it's almost like somebody at that stage of the journey, when even if you like donor conception hasn't worked, experiences a very profound sense of disconnection and disillusionment with themselves, their bodies, often their relationships. And I think that isn't spoken enough about. What we yeah. often get, Becky, is a sense of that place in the narrative. And then very quickly, those who have moved on yeah. into being able to hold um a story around being child free or childless not by choice but actually what Sital speaks to in, in her very inimitable you know hugely vital way is that part of the journey 
with as very few people around. Yeah. Who, who represents that part of the experience, you know, online or in the TTC community or even within the DC community? Yeah. It's it's even more lonely, isn't it? And I suppose there's not where where you're still in limbo in a way you it's may not be working yet you've not decided what the next move might be or or what you do you are very much in a a, a very difficult space of and, and often you see on Instagram and myself included I started sharing my story once I'd had my children and you, you hear a lot of those stories and, and that's why I, I wanted to share Sita's story because I think it's so important for those people who are still trying um, and still thinking about that next step to feel like they're not alone as well and I think we think of um, the amazing Annabelle who writes the blog Maybehood and mm. she writes so beautifully about mm. that phase of limbo and the fear and the shame and, and everything else that comes with it so yeah I think it's really but important, it, like you say, to, to talk about these things. It absolutely is. And, and again, the, one of the reasons why, and Rebecca Fisi is, is somebody who I love writing about this. She has done a lot of research around um, reproductive narratives um, in terms of IVF narratives. And, and quite amazingly, um, there's a very high proportion of people who believe that IVF and all fertility treatment has a f- at least a 50% success rate. Well, actually, we know it's, it's less than half of that. Mm. And, you know, Robert Winston has also spoken out, Professor Robert Winston has spoken out recently to say he wishes, you know, clinics and the whole fertility uh, community were more honest with people about, you know, the success rates. And I guess the, the very particular part of this journey in terms of um, donor conception is, of course, that what you're being told at the clinic is that your success rate will go up. And that's absolutely the case. Yeah. But even then, you know, you're being told you've been given a story of hope that, of course, you want to hold on to. And I think when that hope is gone, it's a very lonely place. And I think yeah. what happens is that that sense of shame gets internalized. The reality is that most people, you know, the success rate of fertility treatments per se still sticks stubbornly, you know, overall between 23 and 25 percent. Yeah. And I don't think that part of the story is spoken enough about. Um, Not at all. It's a very lonely psychological place to be in. And I think one of the difficulties of, of being in that place over a period of time is that it can have, you know, really... Um, unexpected consequences on one's mental health yeah absolutely and I I think back to my own journey and I started on the IVF route and thought IVF guarantees a baby and learned the hard way that that is not the case and then I'm I think I went back into my naive state when I moved on to donor eggs because I thought well this is going to be the answer and there's something wrong with my eggs I use somebody else's and and we were fortunate that it did work but I remember at the time, I was so terrified to even contemplate the thought of it not working. And I think that's a really scary place to be once you've already compromised, move your goals, posts, or kind of yeah. moved on to a different path. And you've had to really work hard to get there to then think about having to do that again, maybe even in a more drastic way, is, is really scary. It is, and I think you say the correct word. It is terror, and mm. in in psychodynamic psychotherapy, so we we talk about the sort of existential terror of, you know, falling apart, falling away, not being part of anything anymore, and as I say, you know, the, the sense of starting off together with a group of friends, and then as they move on with their families, perhaps at this stage they have their second and third children, and even as you've moved into a you know a more niche community, such as the DC community, even then you're at risk of being isolated, of not belonging anymore. It can really raise, you know, very profound questions and feelings of you know identity of loss of not belonging 
um, of feeling excluded, left out, less than. And, and these are absolutely feelings that um, we, we should be able to speak about. Yeah. Not yeah. to do so, I think, risks, you know, leaving those people out in the cold. We will have felt them, all of us, at different parts of the journey. But the reality is that they become very intensified at this stage. Yes. Yes, and I, I've seen that through the Instagram community and even the Paths to Parenthood community as well, where people yeah. start out on this journey together and suddenly they've found their community, yet people move at different speeds and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it, it is yeah. about making space for that very real outcome where it, it doesn't work that time and, and then deciding what you do next and that's something we're talking about just this month in, in Paths to Parenthood in the webinar um, yes. about facing that prospect of, of it not working and how can we prepare ourselves um, emotionally and yeah, what we can put in place. So I know that's going to be really valuable for people. Thank you so much, Julianne. Um, really, I look forward to, to sort of going into this topic a bit more when we speak later on in the month yes there'll be lots of opportunities for members to ask questions and to share their stories as well thank you again julianne and you can hear more from julianne over at parenthood in mind over on instagram now to end each episode i always share where you can find my guests if you wanted to connect with them or to follow their journey even further before doing so i just want to add that since recording Cetel has shared a wonderful but sensitive update you can find her at Savla Fair. But as Cetel says herself, please protect your heart if you need to. It goes to show that things can change in many different ways. And if you're feeling lost and not knowing which way to turn, Julianne and I have recently recorded a compassionate webinar on Paths to Parenthood, all about where to turn and what to consider when things don't go to plan. There's lots of supportive content for all stages of the journey for members of Paths to Parenthood, which also includes a counselling directory if you need to access further professional support. Next time, I'm going to be chatting all about talking with our child with an emotional and heartfelt episode with a fellow donor egg mum who has generously supported others in telling their family story. And it also features a little guest appearance from someone very close to me too. Before I go, if you haven't heard, I'm hosting an event in London on the 21st of May, an actual real life in-person event, and I can't wait. There's going to be a recipient parent panel, a donor conceived panel, and also two workshops, one of which is led by Julianne herself, where we're going to be exploring dealing with genetic loss. The other workshop will be focusing on our narrative and how we can talk to both our children and other people about our path to parenthood. There's lots of amazing opportunities to connect with others too. Now tickets are selling fast, over half have gone already, so if you do want to find out more and to come along, just head to my website to find out more and I would absolutely love to meet some of you in person. Thanks again for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do take a moment to rate and review. I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you and I hope you have a good week and I'll speak to you soon.